Hello everybody! We've got a treat for you today. This is our uh, latest Speculate special episode for you all. And we're very excited to get into a very lovely chat that uh, I'm sure some of you will be very, very intrigued to hear us think more about. But before we talk about that, I'd like to ask all of these lovely people to please introduce themselves. I'll go before uh, lightning strikes. So, uh, hi everyone, I'm Greg, one of the lovely co-hosts here on Speculate, and you're going to get a thunder in just a moment. Wait for it. Wait for it. Okay, that was just a slight rumble. I'm in the middle of a thunder... There it is. I'm in the middle of a thunderstorm right now, so I apologize right now. This is... Uh, the, the minute we knew we were doing a special Speculate episode, the w- weather was like, outstanding, now the time has come. Um, but I'm excited to talk about this topic tonight, because it came up a little bit in my mind last night when Brandon was playing with me on my Eberron game, and uh, so I'm going to cite that and other things during our discussion. Mm-hmm. Mike? Hey, I'm Mike. Uh, they or he pronouns for me. This, com- this topic also came up on Friday, because we've had three days in a row of most of us seeing each other and playing and or talking about games, which is a good weekend to me, honestly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. This is why we work together. This is why Speculate is so uh, is the way that it is, because we just meet up randomly and go, hey, I have a thought about RPGs. It's so um, we can play games. I mean, no, no, that's not why. That's not. It's academic, intellectual reasons, uh, really. And yeah. also because we also like playing games. And that, yes. But yeah, I'm Brandon, uh, one of the co-hosts of Speculate, alongside Mike and Greg, and I'm very excited for us to chat about emergent theme in TTRPG actual play. I feel like all of us have had our various moments as GMs and as players when we started doing a thing in the game and then something else just kind of sprouted from it. And especially as GMs, I'm curious to hear like how we respond to some of that, but also as players, how we respond to discovering that a thing that we did not know that the game meant is now revealing itself and we're really into what that means. But yeah, I'm very excited to chat more about that. And I guess we should start uh, with Mike, the person who, ha- yeah. who most recently has a Speculate game <laughs> running about uh, how that occurs in Valorant and your thoughts about that. Yeah, so I had run a short-ish Court of Blades campaign, not on a stream, not recorded for anything, just for some friends that I've been playing TTRPGs with online since around 2016, folks that some of which I knew through being in the SCA. And so it's people I hadn't played RPGs with, and then now we've played a whole bunch of different games, but mostly I've been a player. I ran a short game of Court of Blades, and a thing that one of the players kind of pitched in the Session Zero was, I don't want us to be anti-establishment in this game. Because in a lot of the other games, we play folks that are kind of agitators or anti-establishment characters. And so instead... He's, his pitch was, this is about being retainers to people in power and helping them fight for power. So it's like helping people that are already powerful try to get more power. And I think if we play too much against that, we might be playing against theme for the game, which I think was a reasonable pitch. And then across that game, I, I largely left my kind of democratic socialist agitator hat off camera and on the shelf because I was following from the the player's aesthetic uh, agenda and kind of request. So then coming into Valorant, I expected that we would do something pretty similar. We had played Rebel Crown, you know, two, maybe two years ago now. And in that you are playing kind of royalists. You are people trying to help a deposed ruler in a monarchy, get back into control in the monarchy, and playing this with people who are, I could, I would say, fairly thoroughly anti-monarchist, anti-royalist in their sentiment. But we met the game kind of where it was, and so coming into Valward, my expectation was that we would do the same, that we would be investigating the moral and ethical complexities of being complicit in and or party to aristocrats and nobles trying to gain and exercise power. And so I left that agitator hat on the shelf 
coming into this game and tried to layer in things like, okay, I think this will be interesting to this player and this player and this player, and kind of setting my first um, suite of errands based on some various hooks that I thought would interest the players that we had at the beginning of the game. And now we've kind of rotated the cast a little bit and I've been adjusting, but I was not at all expecting some of the thematic elements and what seemed to be like character interests and character projects that have come up. And that is because those are ones that were introduced by the players. And here, I think I will pass it back over to Greg and Brandon, who are both players in that game, to talk about their experience of what they find as and have brought with theme to the campaign. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see what Brandon thinks about this, too, because we also both played in the Rebel Crown game. Uh, that you were also jamming, Mike. And the interesting thing about that was this, again, this topic sort of popped up in my head as well after Friday night when there was a uh, big, the conclusion of the Hibiscus tournament that my character Karevis playing in and everyone had to be on their toes. It was very well dancing mastered, if that's a term, session. And um, Brandon's character got stabbed through the lung. It was a time. You, you definitely need to be here mm-hmm. for this. But one of the things that came to me was, I was like, man, you know, I really, the, my, one of my, my favorite part of the Rebel Crown thing was the big tourney joust like thing that Rebel Crown did. And I was like, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder what that's about. And it occurred to me that one of the things that we, that I became interested in um, with both Karevis and with uh, the character that I played in Rebel Crown was, and I've, I've, I've always been somewhat interested in this anyway, is how does one maintain honor? Because I think we throw around the term honor and it feels like a kind of hidebound, you know, like, well, this is the sort of thing that my father and my grandfather, I, I don't know that I agree with that. I think that honor actually is a moral code that can be enormously uplifting and powerful. And I would argue actually that some of the most countercultural revolutionary types have done that with a sense of honor that they felt they needed to uphold. But in the imperial sense here, because we're talking about like Valorward and a very kind of hierarchical system, I sort of suggested the idea of getting to the point where we can take our house, House Vorster, which has, which was once ascendant and now is kind of, I don't know about fallen on hard times, but it's definitely dropped behind some of the others. And as we're trying to uplift it in this game, I kind of thought of it as, you know, Karevis has this sense of honor, but it's based upon the best principles of what you would want someone to be, which is uh, compassion, which is mercy, which is strength for the weak, to protect those who cannot protect themselves, to fight against injustice. Like, stop me when you've heard something which seems against anything that we would agree with generally, right, as, you know, good, possibly left-of-center political people, right? Like, I, I don't think any of those things are problems for anyone, and it occurred to me that if you could, could you, could you work a system such that you can arrive at the top of the system with the stated goal of ultimately redistributing the power to everyone else within that system. I think it might be possible, though it has rarely been tried, but I think it might be possible. There are some historical examples. So I was just like, that is kind of what we're doing. And actually, this is where I can kick it to Brandon. One of the things that made me think about that was because Zelfa and Marcelo played by uh, Darcy Little Badger in our campaign, um, and Gencia played by Rianne and Held. But because all of those characters were hugely important, like there's no way Karevis like when you know gets to where he gets to or whatever, if everybody isn't like working around to like undercut attempted assassinations and sabotages and all that, right? But one of the things that occurred to me was the fact that Zelfa, who is of course a Dialta, kind of the native peoples of Valorward before there was a Valorward, essentially. Um, I'm oversimplifying, but basically the fact that Zelfa upholds that, but at the same time has always got in the back of her mind, I imagine, the fact that there is a underlying reality of the fact that the Dialta remain oppressed under this hierarchical system as a whole. I often, I really thought that Crevice has become increasingly interested in, because of his own backstory, how do we get to the point where we can, as part of that power distribution I was talking about, how can we do this so that the honor of, for example, native peoples like the Dialta is respected in this process? So it was actually Zelfa's character combined with this hidebound, let's all get together and do tournaments like the old days type of thing. Those things combined kind of got me thinking about how we might 
shift this a little bit thematically towards something that is ultimately undercutting this system once you've reached the top of it. So it was the Dialta that got me thinking about that, I guess. And I don't know, Brandon, did that like fall into your, does any of this make sense in terms of where Zelfa is looking um, as you see her going forward? Or, or am I, what do, you, what do you think about that? Oh, no, the, the, like when we were developing the world, because we were very fortunate that before we started playing uh, Court of Blades proper, Mike led us in a game of Ex Novo so we could start making some narrative adjustments to the world so we weren't just playing in the sandbox that the Drake's already put into the game, which is a very good setting to be sure, but we yeah. were like, let's do, like, we're writers, let's do our own world building. I'm particularly glad not only that we got to do that, but that you were a part of that, and in, in particular, Premi Muhammad, who... Uh, joined the cast very early as Lutras was also a part of that process because it meant there were two Car Caribbean people in the process who were like, let's make this as Caribbean as possible. And one of the things that just kind of came out of that naturally is I felt like it would be interesting to like visit the idea of how to continue problematizing colonialism in Latin America and the Caribbean, and the thing that we hit on, and the curious thing is, I didn't even know if there was a word for the thing yet. I guess the only word that you can use for it is uh, repatriates, which is that the Dialta were the local peoples who responded to the, natu the, the natural disaster-prone context of the island by going, we need to go to a place where is, that is um, more safe. And then came back to the island after it had been colonized and went, well, this is where we live. And then the royalty in the area were like, well, we found the place, so it's ours. Can't you see the flag? And just kind of dealing with that context. And I think that it's kind of generally... Uh, like, the thing that, I, that dawned on me when we had that conversation on Friday is... In that world building, we created a thing that was contextually already there in other game that we played that uh, Mike GM'd, which is uh, how do we have conversations about royalty and the inherent power imbalance of a kingdom through the lens of what is wrong about this place. Because, like, a lot of fantasy fiction, part of why a lot of the assumptions that we make about fantasy fiction are so deeply ingrained is, is because of the other inherent assumption about kingdom. That is, royalty is in place to respond to the inherent volatility of other elements of society, that things are wrong in this place, and the only thing that is keeping order is kingdom, which is bad and false and wrong. And the curious thing in um, that other game, I can't remember the... We, you literally said... Oh, the, Rebel Crown? Right, Rebel Crown. The interesting thing about that Rebel Crown game is the setting of Rebel Crown already has um, that conflict built in, which is like tugging on a string that connects it to uh, Blades in the Dark, which is magic is bad and volatile, and it makes death similarly volatile. And you enter your crew, your team enters that story with a solution to the problem of what makes death volatile that is considered blasphemous in that space. And we as the players, and especially are like Liege, played by Alex Axe, um, leaned into the idea that what if the blasphemy is just relying on touting kingdom as a response to that volatility of death doesn't actually improve anybody's life. What if we go out of our way to do the work that is necessary to actually improve the lives of others in this state? And everybody's like, we don't have to do that. You're serving the people that's weird we're gonna stop you we're like no you can't stop us and the way that that similarly manifests in Court of Blades is asking questions about Valor's relationship to this island and constantly going back to the fact that 
there was a community of people who lived here and knew how volatile this territory is and you didn't listen to, you didn't listen to the people who didn't leave and now everybody else is back and telling you you should have listened to us it also creates this interesting dynamic where one of the things that we're slowly kind of teasing out of this house is even though the house is made of uh valid individuals you can go the only person I, we seem to have qualified that is the Alta in House of Worcester is Zelfa Hamel. We're kind of drawing, slowly pulling the string of what if Worcester's ultimate goal is doing what is necessary with the power that they have to actually return to those Dialta ideals, knowing that they know very little about them, but also knowing that if no one tries to restore those things, all of the other houses are just going to run roughshod over the island anyway, and that's not going to help anyone, not even them. And we haven't even gotten to any of those beats yet, but because we're teasing those beats, I'm very curious to see what those beats will look like when we get there, because one of the things that Zelfa is really into is, I care about House Vorster because they've cared about me, they support me when I'm helping my people, they're the reason why I can eat and sleep without worrying about whether pro bono work is going to feed me. But they're also the colonizers. <laughs> How do I feel about that? And we haven't gotten to any of those beats yet because I haven't had like lots of non-mission moments of conversation with higher members of the house. When that happens, I, pr- I imagine there are going to be a lot of very intense, like, why are you still here, Zelfa? Are you sure you don't hate us? We'd understand if you hate us. So I'm very excited to get to those beats. <laughs> and I'm yeah. sure Mike knows this as well. Well, and the I wasn't sure exactly the direction and the extent that Brandon wanted to take kind of the Dialta's relationship to the like the valid systems of power until Brandon is like, cool, here's how my downtime works, here's how my obligation works. And, you know, and then in a little bit of back and forth, I provide, you know, just a little bit of, of string to kind of like, okay, here, here's a bit of a thread of narrative and Brandon tugged on it and I was like, oh, okay, here's a whole spool. Uh, you're not getting just a little bit of thread because I was responding to player and character interest and something that I've tried to keep front of mind in Forge in the Dark games, which is liberatory but also scary is to hold on lightly as a gm principle which i believe that language comes directly or mostly from apocalypse world by vincent mcgay baker which is the the game that founds the power by the apocalypse tradition that then is a major influence on forged in the dark and so we did the world building in ex novo I've done some additional world building. Brandon and I did a world building stream. All of the players have added to the world building when I ask questions or by just filling out who their character is. But I haven't done the thing of like, okay, and now here's 30,000 more words of wiki for this setting. Like we've reached a, a level of world building where there is internal consistency and integrity, but we've left blank spaces and I have tried to not nail down anything too terribly hard because then in play, if somebody comes up with something that's different, I can be excited to say, oh, fantastic. And I just push aside whatever I had sketched out. And that mentality comes both from the, like, the, the GM principles advice in the Forge in the Dark style, but also from my experience leading the writer's room on Born to the Blade with now Realm.fm, but formerly Serial Box, where the method that we were taught to use for Born to the Blade that I did with Marie Brennan, Cassandra Kaw, and Malka Older was like a TV writer's room model that was introduced to Serial Box with the first series. Like, you know, kind of, here's the TV writing model, and then it's been adjusted here and there. And because that was a world that I had already written a novel and a half in, like the second novel I ever wrote that has never seen the light of day and probably will never see publication was in that setting. And then I revisited that setting and then I revisited the setting again and sold it to Serial Box. So coming in with years and years of 
work and memory and emotions about that setting, I knew that I had to pull back and release my grip on that place. Otherwise, there would maintain a, like a really strong hierarchy of whose word goes in that creative project. And I did not want it to be Born to the Blade, the Michael R. Underwood show starring Michael R. Underwood with uncredited writers, you know, as the three other people. Also as like wanting to go in and at the time, like not being, uh, not being out to myself, thinking like, oh, okay, I'm the straight white guy in the room, parentheses, no, they weren't, end parentheses. Um, like not all of those words are true. Wanting to decentralize my perspective to allow the other collaborators to kind of bring in as much as they wanted, I had to kind of hold on lightly and remove myself from ever wanting to say, well, no, it's like this. It was always what I had in mind was this, or this is what I had sketched out. And then I've tried to bring that loose grip and excitement for other people's creative contributions to these other campaigns. And I think it's especially manifested in Valorword, where I have been really directly soliciting world-building contributions. And we've had this series that's gone on longer, which is great because then something, then when Greg is like, here's the secret backstory of Father Cartagano, I could be like, whoa, that's great. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to have to think about this. So this reminds me of a thing, a, a feeling that I had and what, like, like, more thoroughly qualifies a kind of policy that I have for actual play that I wish more people can very deeply espouse. Because when that Father Katagano reveal happened, like, I got very excited and was very strongly trying to not let people, like, real. I'm having suddenly a lot of feelings about a character Zelfa hasn't met in story yet. Because... What happens in the flow of story in that moment is we have met Father Cartagano at least three times as a very mild-mannered, thoughtful priest. Oh no, Father Cartagano is probably dying. It's probably because he's a mild-mannered, thoughtful priest who didn't see this thing coming. Oh no, he's been a secret badass the whole time. Now I'm very curious why he was almost poisoned. And it reminds me of, like, this principle that I care about very deeply, which is there is this habit of a lot of more high-profile um, high actual play to be seen as a director in a room full of players. But it's actually a writer's room imagining what a player who is not them would respond to the uh, story decisions that they've made as writers would do. And I think that, like empowering players to think and uh, to be in a position to think and engage very deeply with expanding stories they're feeling like they're engaging with a story that has already been crafted for them is a very powerful way to not only give players more agency in game because they know that they're deeply engaging with the story instead of just playing a role they're now invested in asking deeper questions about the world because they know that when they do so they're being rewarded with more world, but it also like fulfills those thematic connections more strongly than just being put in a put being put in a story beat and responding to it. You now know that you have hinted something to the GM that this matters to you, even if it hadn't come up in earlier sessions. And now the GM has more strings that they can pull for. Uh, narrative fulfillment for you as a player and those things are not just good for story obviously but they're good for the player as well it reminds me of the thing that i like so very much about the book blades in the dark which is it has a great deal of interesting story questions in it why is the sun destroyed who is the emperor what is the actual state of the empire in this space do people like or trust um, imperial responsibility in this area because there are other communities in the Naga Isles who are here by force. What is their relationship after having lost the unification war, etc.? And then the book doesn't answer any of those things. The book hints at very powerful demons still existing and then goes, 
I don't know where they are. Do you know where they are? Do you know what they're doing? And I'm supposed to be like, hmm, what if I know what they're doing? What right. if I, as a player, have an idea what they're doing? What if they come up now? And that's interesting as a GM because it means that the players have now given me something that surprises me. And it's interesting for the players because knowing that they have qualified that this is a thing that matters puts me on the spot to make sure that it matters in this story. And when that happens, everyone's like, a story back and forth is happening that will always generate good narrative. And I feel like that's something AP should cling to as a policy, but also groups of writers in general should also cling to that as a policy, the idea that no one creator in this room is beholden to the lore of this world. Everybody is given an opportunity to say, I want to qualify that this thing matters in this world. I, have, I want to say so many things. Brandon, you've given me so many ideas. It's great. I love this idea of thinking about TTRPG books as like provocatively incomplete. Yeah. Um, like the policy that I've been taking in some of the writing for my own games is everything that you see in this book is a rumor. Don't treat this as a word of God, because I don't know what's happening in this world. That's why I give you the opportunity to play it. Yeah. If I knew what was happening in the world, I'd write a book. I'd write a novel. I didn't write a novel. Please tell me what's happening in this world. Yeah, and like making genre knots, I've taken things that I have set, uh, have as settled in my mind, and I'm undermining them in the RPG of like, well, people, a lot of people think this, but who knows? The other thing that I wanted to, to touch on real brief, really briefly is a, a whole different discussion episode that we could have on an actor's mentality in actual play versus a writer's mentality in actual play. And making a distinction there for illustrative purposes as opposed to insisting on a hard dichotomy or a hard separation, kind of building on, Brandon, what you mentioned earlier in terms of like how people are reacting to the prompts that they're being given, you know, in a given actual play, are people showing up and then expecting to be told a story that then they're participating in? Or is everybody showing up saying, we are building this story together? What are the gradations of those mentalities? And where can we help empower, teach, and encourage people to maybe exercise more agency as storytellers because the three of us approach actual play with the professional skill set of writer and author. Yeah. And I guess like another touchstone for that is obviously um, the first time I went to Big Bad Con, I did a an improv for a gamers panel with Karen Twelves. And it was one of the most revelatory experiences in my life, in part because it reminded me of a thing that I already knew, which is TTRPGs is just theater with people who are sitting down. And one of the things I think players should be aware of more often is, yes, and is an opportunity that you are not uh, at this table simply to be beholden to the ideas of the GM. You can go, I like this idea, let's add on this idea. And the, a good GM should respond to those ideas by like allowing you to add those layers and encouraging you to feel like you can and in situations where players don't know that they can the gm should go out of his way to ensure that players know that that is a power that they have as players because this is a collaborative story you're just not you're not just a puppet in my world i think it's i think it's also important to note too that the strength of the beats that are part of the world setup that are likely to stay, you know, that are, that are kind of built in at the beginning, those beats can still be reached if, and I, I sometimes talk about this with GMs that are just starting out, that the, don't, to not be as worried about the obsession of getting to, I, I need to get to this beat by this, you know, period of time because XYZ, because the beautiful thing about tabletop is that time can be very fluid and the time spent between beats then can develop things in much different ways. So like we knew there was going to be this hibiscus tournament, right? And we knew there was going to be this ghost, we, we didn't know what it was, but some train thing that turned out to be a ghost train thing or whatever. We knew those were set beats. But what we do between those beats during downtime actions, even during the actual missions themselves where we're actually going and how we choose to solve the mission, you know, alters substantially. That says everything about 
the major beat. And again, we've talked about this even in regards to regular story. The reason that you give a damn about the action in the movie Die Hard, greatest action movie ever made, is because you find out about Al in between the big action moments. Is because you understand Al's backstory and you understand why Al, you know, is very has mixed feelings about being a cop and what you know and why John McClane is a deeply flawed human being and like all these things, right? And those things make you care then when the action beats actually happen as opposed to just, but look at this action thing and look at this action thing. So like, I think that GMs sometimes have this fear that if they allow players to take things in a different direction thematically or otherwise, they will in doing that mean that they will, it will somehow, they won't have a place in the story anymore, which is impossible, right? Because of the way that the GM is, you know, shaping and moving things around for everybody. But beyond that, the players, yes, and I love the yes and concept there. The players yes and is not, we're only going to do this and screw your hibiscus tournament and your ghost train and your this and your that. Like we weren't going to be like screw house Vorster. We're going to go out and live in a campfire somewhere because we knew coming in that we were part of this house and we were like, okay, so we're part of this house and it's doing this thing so that some of those beats are built in as ones that we accept will be there. But what we do with the beats, and most importantly, how we get to the beats, changes everything then about the beats. So like the Father Cartagano thing, you know, honestly, I, I, I'm often fascinated with sort of mentor-student relationships anyway in fiction and in games and media of various types. I may have written a novel in which that's fairly prominent. And like, I love, I love stories like that. And there was something about the way that Mike played Father Cartagano that... I really found, I kept talking on Friday about this Blade vibe of like Chris Christopherson and, and, uh, and Blade. And I kept thinking about how the Cartagano was perfect. It was mild-mannered. And I was like, you know, he is mild-mannered now, actually. But I wonder if how he came to the mild-manneredness. I wonder if the reason that he became mild-mannered is because he saw the impact of what happened when he did not engage in that kind of behavior. If he was a different person who was changed and altered in multiple different ways, but that that sort of, he understands the fire that animates Karevis because it animated him, but it does not animate him in the same way now, and he's providing Karevis because he knows the experience and the pain that he went through, an opportunity not to go down that same path, right? Or at least not to go down the same path with as closed a vision, with as, as rigid a kind of moral approach as perhaps Cartagano himself might have had. So, and that just, you know, came to me in part because of the way that Mike was playing him. So then when we're in the midst of this tournament and then when there was this whole thing which Mike had provided about this whole Father Cartagano's in danger and all this stuff and, and Karevis, the sort of twist of this is that Karevis is the only one who doesn't know this, like, because everyone's like, don't tell Karevis because he's going to be distracted, which is true. So everybody knows about it, but Karevis, like the character who knows Father Cartagano the best. But then that made me think, well, what if there is more to Cartagano than just, you know, this other, this other element of the sort of standard, you know, my son, you come to me for absolution type of thing. And that was fascinating to me. But again, that's because of the stuff that we were doing in downtime, in between beats, in between these big moments that sort of changed things thematically. And one other thing I want to compare this to, and then I'll stop. This also happens, I think, in areas that have what appear to be strong thematic backdrops, but without specific referent moments. Let me see if I can sort of parse that. In Curse of Strahd, the dominant figure in the adventure is Strahd. Strahd the vampire, Strahd the awful creature, Strahd the evil, sort of his evil is so complete, his narcissism is so complete that it literally subsumes Barovia, like all of Barovia is under, is, is basically an extension of Strahd. So the question is, do you play Curse of Strahd as a bunch of people being like, boy, do I hate Strahd? No, you have something that's so ever-present that everyone in some way is going to define themselves with that floating in the background, not even necessarily against Strahd, but how do you exist in an environment where all Strahd wants you to focus on is him all the time? And the answer in the campaign I played was, there is this countervailing resistance that all of the party members come up to where these disparate figures that in many ways would never work together under any other context. But one thing they can agree is that 
no one is going to tell them that the way to exist is under the thumb of Strahd. And so they become more invested in preserving each other than they are their own individual ambitions because screw Strahd. Because Strahd's not going to be the one who gets to have the final say. I don't think if you saw that from the outside, you would think this is likely to happen. But I promise you, because I've seen multiple examples of this, not just the game I played, most of the time, the Strahd adventures end up being people defining themselves far more powerfully with contrast, with interest, and as a group because Strahd is this ever-present figure in the background. So it's not when it's run well, it's just a bunch of people talking about, I really hate Strahd. It's about these people are drawn together to define themselves ever more brightly, uniquely, creatively, unusually, and specifically because they will not be tools of Strahd in the way that Strahd would want them to be, or echoes or phantoms or phantasms of Strahd. So that to me is an interesting way in which that, that sort of backdrop that f sort of shadowy, he's always there and he doesn't like you and blah, 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 becomes this thing against which people then say, no, I established this bright line of the character that I want to be. And in this case, almost always it is with my other friends that I've become friends with because they agree with me that they also want us to be bright characters against the shadowy darkness of whatever Strahd is in the background. So it's interesting to see how players together can be defined against a more shadowy or a more specific reference point. In this case, as you say, we were all doing the world building together. But I would argue even then, the thing that made it really work is that there aren't as many absolute signposts from beat to beat. And it's that in-between section where the campaign ends up defining itself in that. Yeah, because Blades in the Dark is a game where the players drive almost everything, right? In, in the materials that I've seen, in the campaigns that I've seen, often the player characters, the crew is given like one or one to three opportunities at the beginning. The players pick what they want to pursue or they have something from a patron that they feel obligated to pursue. And then as the campaign goes on, they are more and more and more proactive. And they are then reacting to things that have happened because of their proactive interest. Like Cindered Seal, a prominent speculate featured adventure that went a little bit different, right? right? And we, we should we should loop back to that uh, real yeah, yeah. quick uh, yeah. after I make a, a point. Yeah, yeah, no, quick. go ahead, go ahead. I just want to um, bring it up. Court of Blades, looking at how Sean Drake ran a short campaign of Court of Blades for the the team actual play, like not actual play the concept, but the channel name. Sean, as the GM, gave the group basically a dossier of here are the things we would like to, to pursue this season. And I kind of took that idea as a way for the player characters to still be able to exert and express agency because it's here are our priorities, pick your priorities from within them, and then decide how you want to pursue them so that I can give some structure that then the players and the player characters are all getting to react to and interpret in their own way. But then in Cindered Seal, we had a different way that Brandon de devised of recontextualizing and reframing what Blades would be about. So Brandon, I'd love to, uh, to take this as a prompt for how you thought Cindered Seal was going to play when you were developing and casting it. And then we could talk about how it went. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I hadn't thought about it that way, and now that you now that you mention it, I'm like, did I break one of the rules of Blades by running it in the way that I did? Because as you say, players are expected to be self-directed in the in the jobs that they take um, as a crew, knowing that they're still coming up against certain conflicts that every at the end of every job they're going to have entanglements and those entanglements are going to brush up against their intentions in ways that will push them towards having to take certain jobs in order to lessen some of that pressure from external forces but the because of the design of that campaign the story essentially opens with an entanglement which is uh, you, the player characters play fugitives because the opening beat of the story is they have been accused of a crime. 
I know nothing about the crime. They know absolutely nothing. They all they know is that the person, a person of interest, is dead, and they didn't even know it was in connection to crime having occurred. And then all of these conflicts start building up in front of them, and they're like, the job that we have to take is essentially a very layered job of what is happening, finding out what is happening here, and attempting to respond to it in time. In a lot of ways, I guess, it's accidentally similar to a lot of Forged in the Dark games that have come after it. Like, it is Girl by Moonlight if the grand mission of attempting to uh, bring hope into this world is just not getting arrested by the Blue Coats. A lot of how theme kind of came out in that process is... All of these people are responding to the core conflict of being accused of having some kind of connection to what is not only the death of a dear friend, but this grander occult conspiracy taking place in this place, and know nothing about it, but know that they are also intrinsically tied to an element of that atmosphere in ways that become noticeable as they discover more about it. Crossroads discovers that they are inherently spiritually tied to the overall occult conflict in the space uh, writ large in ways that they have been denied the opportunity to remember and struggling to remember it. It becomes valuable to that story. Ash, in the job that uh, she does in this space, but also as a... Severosi immigrant to this island is struggling with a crisis of faith internally that is intrinsically attached to this conflict as well. Skelly learns that one of the other core actors in this conflict is an enemy, uh, a previous enemy of hers tied to her history as an orphan. And Ring learns that an entire community of individuals connected to the work that Ring does are also tied to this conflict because they have been unknowingly conscripted into performing what are like dire acts of criminality in this space as as a result of that. And all of them are going, when I got here, I didn't know that this had anything to do with me, but now I'm invested because it has everything to do with me. And... A lot of those decisions were, like, not things that I had settled on. Like, I, I speak a lot about that obviously very kick-ass moment in play where Iori Kusano uh, storms into this Severosi hiding place and just, like, crafts lore right in front of everybody about why Crossroads is here. And I'm like, you know what? Don't roll. This just works. I love that I just learned something. But, like, another very important beat to me is Skelly in this burned-down warehouse confronting uh, her rival in the same space that everybody else is otherwise struggling to get in combat formation and having this very intense emotional response to the fact that this person, who I thought I'd never see again, who I already have a lot of personal feelings about, is invested in this thing and knows that I'm invested in this thing and is goading me into being invested further. I should just kill this woman right now, but we need to learn more information about the thing, so I guess we're on the hook for more of this. And I'm like, you know what? This hadn't occurred to me beforehand. When I just asked you to qualify the orphanage, I just wanted to gain more flavor about the orphanage so we could color this rivalry. And then more theme emerged because you have revealed who you are and who she is and why you are both conflicted and why you have responded in ways that you did in very personal ways to, like, the act of eating food in ways that I now need to pay off because you have revealed deeply what makes you both different and that means that I need to play this rival as strongly as possible to qualify that further and that was a really kick-ass scene like if there are any animatic if any uh anybody here knows how to like draw and animate the first scene that i'd want someone to do an animatic of is that burning warehouse so yeah um i feel like 
in a lot of ways that we've already discussed how a lot of that emergent theme is as greg said how do all of these individual people have individual problems that are tied to the looming conflict everybody here in Syndicate seal is going through their own stuff that they thought was just hashtag just living in dust ball things and then discovered that dust ball is such a broken place that even a very niche conflict like where is this rare cursed object suddenly has a lot of impact for them personally and then fulfilling that impact as strongly as possible one one thing i want to jump in on i know we have to wrap up here in a second but just one thing i want to wrap up on big questions spawn small questions and multiple small questions and so if you as a gm thematically have asked the biggest kind of questions all of these other questions that players develop, it seems to me, derive from those initial questions. We talk about how the best sort of role-playing games are about listening, right? About listening to other players, about listening to the GM, about the GM listening to the players. And all of us are sort of collectively listening. That is also the way that the best improv works, too. It's about listening to other people and responding in that way. And I want to point out that in each of the cases that you mentioned with Cindered Seal, the large question that had been asked, it seemed to me, is what kind of a community is possible in Duskwall? And what ends up being asked as smaller questions are what elements, what each small communities are that each player represents, whether it's Ring thinking about the group of people that Ring wants to support going forward, or whether it's about Crossroads realizing that they are, as you said, part of the conflict which kind of animates this, and they have now developed their own community of this sort of ragtag band of people that have come together. I think each of the answers that's developed here comes from individu the individuals asking the questions of what communities they value, and that derives from the larger question, Brandon, that was asked by you as the GM to begin with, implicitly or otherwise, which is what community is possible within Duskwall. And if you think about the way that Blades in the Dark works, it is something which asks large questions from which each GM asks somewhat smaller questions from which all the players themselves derive further questions, and that allows you to produce what I think is a thematically rich work. But again, that is because we started with the best kind of largest question. And in a way, themes are about question asking and about the way that people respond to them in those terms. Yeah, and so the the... I would say the elementary advice from that that you said, Greg, and stepping back one one more layer is you may be well advised to go into a campaign as the GM with questions and not answers. Right. 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 Come into the game with questions about the setting, questions about the characters, questions about how things will go, and some sense of the world state as it is. Yep. Rather than going into a going into a campaign like you know a Curse of Strahd, where okay the question is how do they kill Strahd, and then I the GM knows, no there is one MacGuffin that is the answer. Like well you may have a answer, but if you go in with questions and hold on lightly, that may help you make the space for then being able to go from the broad and the general to the very specific, and it is in the specific. I think in Cindered Seal and in Rebel Crown and in Valorward, these longer series that we've done, and I think very much in the specific in Girl by Moonlight, that is in the specific questions and answers that characters and particularity and three-dimensional people emerge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, the interesting thing, I've never played Curse of Strahd, but I have read it, but like the interesting thing that comes to me when you say when you uh, mentioned that about questions is there is this tendency as a GM to be prepared for everything and I feel like um, as pithy as this sounds you should be prepared to be prepared but you shouldn't be prepared for everything and the thing that comes to mind is I'm sure you've noticed that there is a large community of people who have played Curse of Strahd whose response to the question how do you kill Strahd is what if I don't want to kill him I can change him, you know. I can fix him. And I feel like there is a very strong, like, value in, as a GM, going, what other solutions to this problem can exist? Mm -hmm. Because there is a very radical story that can be told in, how do you meet someone with not only this level of institutional power, but this strong 
narcissistic, narcissistic attachment to that power and attempt to reform that um, power, not by force, but by some other action. And then as a GM going, I want to know what you think is valuable in that goal so I can either fulfill that goal for you or tell you why that goal will be a struggle. And I think that discovering what that story would look like would also be revelatory for the GM and therefore tells a revelatory story at the table that because you were not prepared to just rush into knowing that this is going to be a fight, but instead prepared to discover what the characters, what the player characters want to tell you, you may learn something about not only what these player characters value as characters, but what these players value as conflict. Um, that would be rewarding for the story and rewarding for further stories with that group. Yep. So what I'm saying is stop killing Strahd. Try well, to reform Strahd all well, the time. Strahd, it's, 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 Strahd can be killed. I think an interesting question is how do you marginalize Strahd? And I think that that's how do you sidestep Strahd? Um, mm-hmm. How does Strahd become not the only... The, Strahd always wants to be the hero in everybody else's story. How do you, how do you say mm-hmm. no? You're not How do you let Strahd know that he is the symptom of a greater problem? So, and a pro- right, a problem which is bigger than him, which of course he can't stand. And, and, that, and really that the most important aspect of the campaign you're running is the people within it that to whom you speak, the players, not the adversary that wants to make it all about him. So I think there's some very interesting sort of back and forth tensions possible. And I'm, I'm, I'm all about it. I, 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 lo- I mean, I'm all about those asking the questions. But I think that, again... That is the one thing of preparation I think you can't skip as a GM, right? I think the thing you cannot skip is you need to know what the big questions are that you want to ask. At that point, as I might have been Mike who said this, or not, well, if, no, actually, I think you said it, Brandon. At that point, it's not about having the answers to those questions. It's about simply asking the questions and letting the players do the rest. And I do think you need to be prepared to think about what the big questions are that you are interested in asking. But that's the beginning of a conversation that you don't have to finish or you don't have to be the only one finishing. You become a part of the group of people that are collectively answering those questions, many of which they have then developed from a couple of those big questions up front. But that's, that's open ended. Yeah. yeah, you ask the question, but you don't anticipate the answers. That's exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. Which, boy, oh my God. And that is such an enormous aspect of good teaching, by the way. An enormous aspect of good teaching is asking questions and not sort of, you know, tapping on your watch, getting ready to jump in and give the student the answer. If you do that, you won't teach them damn thing. You've got to wait and allow them to process through these things. And teachers often say, because it's true, that they learn from their students every time. And you do that. If you allow the students to be the ones who are coming up with their own answers and maybe more questions that it generates for you. So that's, that's the cool part. Um, yeah. Like as a frequent Forge in the Dark player and GM, I continue to learn from other people when they play these games, either when I'm also a player or when I'm a GM, because of the different approaches, the different stances, the different ideas that they bring to the table and so like in cindered seal when iori is like all right i'm gonna take a gigantic swing i was delighted and awestruck and have continued to try to approach not just forged games but rpgs in general with where where can and where should i take huge swings how do i set it up yeah so that I'm not disrupting the game? How do I identify my moment where it's not just that someone should take a big swing here, but that I'm the right person to do so either because of the right character or because I'm the person who has an idea in that moment and to be able to navigate between the out-of-character declaration of the, hey, I have a big swing here, and then the in-character declaration of the action itself and being able to move between those registers or there's like stances of play so that you can say like, hey, I've got an idea here, but I don't want to wreck the whole game. And I think that there are some people for whom in actual play that that level of table talk is forbidden for some reason, right? Because that immersion is the most important thing. But for me, the process of the making the story together is the thing that is most special about actual play compared to a lot of other performance forms. 
And so I see no reason to hide the kind of tabletop collaboration, but instead try to feature it and foreground it and to foster the conversation as a player at least as much as when I'm uh, when I'm a GM, but when I'm a player, I try to take my cues from the GM so that we're not getting like a dueling GM kind of situation. Uh, one quick bit on Strahd, because I'm on the start playing games like GMing server, I've seen a lot of people talk about the the kind of remix of Curse of Strahd called "She Is the Ancient" by Beth the Bard, which gender bends Strahd, but then also like brings a bunch of other perspectives and kind of is like a feminist critique slash remix of Curse of Strahd. And so the question that that book is answering or asking is, well, what if Strahd's relationship to the module was different? What if we were asking different questions in Curse of Strahd rather than like, okay, well, how do I deal with like the like the sexual violence question or like the sexual domination question of Curse of Strahd. Instead, you bring some new ideas and new new materials so that you can change the question and the like emotional thematic landscape. And that's like, that's not just the GM level. That's like the game design and world level where you step back and ask questions or change the questions. So there's always that option too, especially in a game that either lends itself to or where there is a great tradition of hacking, right? Like, I don't know that 5e lends itself to hacking as well as some games, but there's absolutely a tradition of hacking 5e in the the way that there is a tradition of hacking Powered by the Apocalypse and Forged and so on. And again, and that's that's well in line with what we see at the sort of highest sort of creative output segments of history. One of the things that made Renaissance drama uh, in England, a period that I know quite well, was precisely because these plays, these playwrights, were in conversation with each other. And the Spanish tragedy is in conversation with Hamlet, which is in conversation uh, with, uh, you know, the Revengers tragedy and and multiple other things. And so in an, you know, in a TTRPG sense, having discussions about these things of what the original Kurt Ravenloft was in the 80s, the much more updated uh, and sort of problematic aspects somewhat reduced in the sort of later Watsi version. This one, I had heard of this, but I haven't had a chance to look into it. The, uh, the you know, She's the Ancient. All of these things are part of a vibrant conversation. And I think if you have something where you're afraid of having the conversation, I think you're going about it wrong. I think Part of a conversation is not to be afraid of where it will take you when everyone has originally bought into the idea that we're not only here to have a good time with each other, but we're here to, again, ask questions. One other point about table talk, by the way, I agree that foregrounding it is a very valid way to do it and that you don't need to avoid it. But I would also argue that um, from a musical point of view, when you improvise in jazz, nobody stops and says, hey, do you think it's okay if I do X, Y, Z at that moment? Why don't they do that? Because they've been playing together long enough that they know most of all to listen. And if a person is presenting a certain line to kind of flow within, maybe resist in particular ways, maybe build upon in particular ways that line so that the immersion is not broken because you've been listening. And again, that I'm not in any way saying that's the way you should do it over anything else, but that's another example of regardless of whether you're going to foreground it or not, not being afraid of the question asking itself is, I think, important. Um, don't be afraid of that aspect. Of it. Right. So, but we need to, we do need to probably bring this to a close, right? Because I think it's been about a little over an hour since we've been chatting. Because we could go on for a long time about talking all about all this stuff. But yeah, but it's really fascinating. And I hope that this is the kind of conversation that people get value out of and that people can see more of as we sort of play out some of these things and speculate and other things, other tabletop stuff that we can, you know, reference, actual play that we can reference, and then see the ways in which this thematically plays out. Because this is on our minds, as you might be able to tell, quite a bit, these kinds of things. These questions, um, <laughs> he said. Yeah, and if, if this kind of discussion, whether it is in relation to our series or in relation to TTRPGs and storytelling in general, if this is interesting to you and if you have questions, we definitely want to hear what you think, what you're interested in, what your questions are about craft and game design and storytelling through actual play and TTRPGs. So please let us know. 
Uh, you can make comments on the Patreon at patreon.com slash speculate. You can respond to or message us on Twitter at speculatesf at um, speculate.bsky.social on Blue Sky and uh, at speculateinfo at gmail.com. Uh, just making sure to get all of those across. Yes. Um, so let's talk about, let's uh, to wrap up here, Mike, talk about uh, our multiple 6 million WebFest nominee things because we have a few WebFest things that we do now, apparently. Yeah, so <laughs> in a couple of weeks as of this recording, Greg and I will be at the New Jersey WebFest in Montclair. The award show will be on Sunday the 24th, where we are up for four awards for Valorward. And then in the weeks following will be the Minnesota WebFest, which we won't be able to attend, but we are up for one or more awards there. Not all of them have been announced just yet. And then the Baltimore Next Media Web Festival is going to be in November, and the award categories for that haven't been announced just yet. So if, you are, uh, if you're listening to this close to the 24th, we would appreciate any good vibes and crossed fingers you are able to share with us. But mostly, it has been an absolute delight to be able to share our work more broadly and to get this positive critical response from the various juries and teams that are running those web festivals. And I'm very excited to get to meet other people who are working in this space and creating using the tools and in this medium of actual play. And... If you are at uh, Big Bad Con at the end of September, both Brandon and I will be there. So you should try to find us in the various social in-between activities spaces and come and say hello. Speaking of that, Brandon, what exactly are you running at uh, Big Bad Con? Since I have heard a rumor you may be, uh, you may be a, uh, I believe, POC scholar, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken, at Big Bad Con as well. That is indeed true. I am uh, very grateful to have gotten a, a PSC scholarship to attend Big Bad Con this year. Very excited to be in the company of other um, POC designers from all over the world because you know how hard it is for people who don't live in the U.S. to get to the U.S. in the first place. So that's mm. already a big deal. So I'm very excited to be back at a place that is very, not only very welcoming and very inclusive to uh, uh, designers of all kinds, but uh, is a wonderful place to have very thoughtful conversations about the active design and the active play, um, which, if you've been listening to us for the last hour, is exactly up our alley at high speed. So I'm very excited to uh, chat with folks during Big Bad Con. But among those things, because Mike and I will be there, we will also be running games there as well. One of the games that I will be running, in fact, is the first official playtest of the Grey Shade uh, RPG, the uh, 5e powered RPG based on the Grey Assassin trilogy by one Greg Wilson. So I'm very excited for people to get to look at that. And I'm also running a playtest of a game of my own design called Hero Revolution, um, which I'm very excited to uh, have people discover uh, more about that as well. And I know that Mike will actually be running some genre nuts games as well. Uh, so if you want to experience some brand new RPG stuff, and you have space in your schedule to uh, jump into a couple of games, or if you just see us idly at some point during the con and you know for a fact we have two hours to kill, definitely just ask us questions about our games. Hey, are those the multiple New Jersey WebFest award-winning Speculate uh, co-hosts Michael R. Underwood and Brandon O'Brien? Oh, God. I, I was be. telling... <laughs> I, I made the joke to Greg, so I'll make the joke to you now, Mike, that I very much look forward to us having a Valua t-shirt that has all, all of our laurels, and it has so many laurels that it's just a plain white t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like completely covers the... Oh my gosh. Right, um, and I'm imagining yeah. the video where it's like, you get the bullet point sound, where it's like, chunk, 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 and it becomes all white, yeah. The reviews are in, and yeah, I, I am very excited for all that. Uh, last thing I want to have us wrap up on is just to mention that um, if you have appreciated all this stuff and all the things we've been talking about, Speculate Oriented, we are having our annual fundraiser coming up in a couple of months. In November, it's going to be held on my Twitch channel, uh, twitch.tv slash Arvin Eleron. It will be, again, a day-long event, which will have a lot of awesomeness associated with it. We haven't figured out all the details yet, but you can expect tabletop play. You can expect, I imagine, a number of 
speculate regulars to show up on it, and it will all be designed to create that new floor. This worked very well last year where we created a new floor of funding, and we want to keep doing that. We obviously want to keep building funding throughout the year, but you know, it, it's, it's, this is three people, three hardworking authors, et cetera, trying to get by. And, um, so we need to be able to have that support to be able to do, uh, videos and overlays, uh, you know, and, and character art and so on that we've gotten from, uh, some amazing artists and stuff like that. And we want to be able to pay all those folks to do that. And we want to be able to continue to up the ante on audio and video editing as well. So all of that can be done by supporting Speculate and giving you access to more behind the scenes videos and things like that as time goes on. So that is going to be happening in November. Um, and we will have more details about the specific date, which I think I remembered and then forgot um, what the specific November date was. I think it's the 11th. Yes. The November 11th. Uh, yes. So November 11th, that is going to be our fundraiser day. Uh, so you will not want to miss that. And we'll talk more about that uh, with shows to come. But otherwise, I think that's it, folks. I think we're good for the moment. So thank you for listening. Again, please give your feedback at speculatesf.com and all the various social medias and all that stuff. And we will see you, uh, New Jersey Webfest, Big Bad Con, fundraisers, and of course, on our very own show. So that's it, I think, for us. <laughs> see you around next time. I'm Mike. Okay. I'm Brandon. I'm Greg. Bye, everybody. Bye. The theme music for Speculate is Yellow Wood by Greg's band, The Road. Find out more at www.thebandtheroad.com Hi, everyone. If you've enjoyed what we've been doing here on Speculate and you've been thinking to yourself, where can I get more role-playing in my life? Can I recommend arvaneleron.com, A-R-V-A-N-E-L-E-R-O-N.com, where you can check out the Curse of Strahd podcast. This, set in the world of Ravenloft, is a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition campaign, which has been running for a long time with a similar group of players, and which has been both a lot of fun and I think you will find enjoyable. If you like it, please let us know both there and over here. You can subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, and many other fine podcast providers. Thanks, and we'll see you over there.